Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like a harp, was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Praise be to God. Well, I promised you that as we continued on in Revelation, it was going to get weirder and weirder. Uh, And here we are in chapters 12 to 13. We're kicking off in chapter 12 with a Christmas story. And then we're ending in chapter 14 with, again, the return of Jesus once more. Um, When I was a kid, we had this Nintendo game that my my dad got me called Spiritual Warfare. Uh, You can go look it up now. You can go to YouTube and you can search Spiritual Warfare Nintendo. And uh, you can find the videos of people playing it. In this video you play, in this game, you played this kid who... uh, who was on a mission to save people. And so you were armed with fruit of the Spirit. And in the game, you had to throw fruit of the Spirit at people. And when the fruit hit them, they would fall on their knees and be saved. And then they would disappear, which was really weird. weird. Um, and, and throughout the game, you're, you're fighting the forces of evil. And so not only are you throwing fruit at people to, to try and get them saved, but you're also battling demons, and ultimately you end up fighting the devil. And, and by the time you get to fight the devil, you, you've got the full armor of God on, and you've got all of the fruits, and you've got the sword of the Spirit, and you're ready to, to fight the devil. And of course, as a kid, like I, I valued this game because I actually learned a lot of Scripture through it because there are these like quizzes throughout the game where you had to learn Scripture. Um, but at the same time, I, I think they missed the mark because as kids playing video games, we still talked about the saving people in this game as killing them. And we still talked about like battling and fighting and, and violence. So I don't know that the game really served its purpose in that way. Uh, it, also, it also had a couple problematic assumptions about it. Because you were like one of only four or five people in the game who were followers of Jesus. And then everybody else was like carrying knives and guns and like wanted to kill you and shoot you. And, and I felt like it kind of gave the wrong message. Like the whole world is against you, you know. Um, but, but we loved this game as a kid. Uh, and and what, it, what it did for me and, and what the church I grew up in and, and, and the, the tradition that I grew up in did for me was really instill in me the, the idea that we do live in a world at war. We, we do live in a world where spiritual warfare and spiritual battles are a very real thing. Uh, I, I grew up reading Frank Peretti. If you've never read Frank Peretti, Frank Peretti is a, an author, he's a novelist, um, and he always writes with these supernatural themes. Uh, and he wrote a couple of books uh, in the, uh, This Present Darkness and uh, Piercing the Darkness, all about spiritual warfare and angels and demons. And, and 
those, those books in that tradition in which I grew up really, really reminded me that, hey, you know, there's so much more going on behind the veil of the material that we see. There's so much more happening than just what we see happening in the physical world. And this is where our faith, this is where Christianity gets really strange if you're a secular person or even if you're just a nominal Christian who's just happy to say the prayer and, and, and know that you're going to heaven when you die. If, if you're just in those camps, then this is where Christianity gets really bizarre. This is where it gets really weird because we actually do believe that there are supernatural beings surrounding us all the time and that there is a supernatural battle that is happening behind the scenes of the material world and that that's as much a part of reality as the things that we can touch and the things that we can feel and see and smell with our senses. There's a supernatural world at work behind the scenes of the physical. And that's what we see happening here in these three chapters of Revelation. This is really where the veil gets pulled back and we begin to see what's happening in the supernatural realm behind the events of the world. This is the point where where we really open up. We've seen a little bit of this. We've seen a little bit of the veil being pulled back in the, the past chapters as, as the, the lamb in heaven undo, undoes the seals of this scroll. But the things that are happening as the lamb undoes the seals are happening on the earth. And they're kind of physical things. They're things that we can link to the physical material world. The same thing happens with the blowing of the trumpets. We see these angels in heaven blowing trumpets, and then we see things happening on the earth. We see armies going forward, and we see uh, natural disasters and earthquakes and things. Here in these chapters, we're, we're stuck only in the spiritual world, right? In these chapters, we're no longer just looking at the material, but we're seeing straight through it and behind the veil of the material to see what's really going on, what's motivating the things that are happening on the earth. And just like with the past chapters, this is a a cycle of things that happen through history. This is not necessarily a rundown of the timeline of the last seven years before Jesus comes back. But this is what's consistently going on in cycles from the time that Jesus rose again to the time that he returns. And that's what we're going to see here. So chapter 12 opens with a Christmas story. Bet you didn't know there was a Christmas story in Revelation, but there is. Here in chapter 12, we open with this vision of this woman who has 12 stars on her head. And she's in the heavens and she's pregnant. And she is crying out in labor pains. It's time for her to give birth. And meanwhile, as she is preparing to give birth, there's this dragon, this great big red dragon who is seeking after her and does not want the child to be born. Or at least, if the child is going to be born, wants to make sure that the child is destroyed the moment the child is born. And so you get this this grotesque, disgusting image of a woman in labor and a dragon perched, waiting for the child to come out so he can devour it and steal it away. And we're told that this woman has a place prepared for her in the wilderness to be safe for 1,260 days. Later, this 1,260-day period will be referred to as time, times, and half a time, which, I mean, if that's not confusing, nothing else is. 
And so this woman has a place prepared for her to be safe from the dragon. And we don't get any sense of the life of this child who's born. We just read that the child is born and then he's taken up to heaven. And then that the taking up to heaven of this child is defeat for this dragon. So this woman represents the people of God. She represents Israel or the messianic community, the community of people who are waiting for Messiah to be born. And of course, the child in her womb is Jesus. He is Messiah, the one who will redeem the people of God, the one who will bring freedom for the people of God. And we read in later in chapter 12 that this dragon is the serpent of old, the devil, the one who is called Satan, the opposer of God, the very one who in the Garden of Eden tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell into sin. And that these are the main characters here in chapter 12. As the dragon pursues the woman, pursues the child, the child is born, taken up into heaven, and then we have this kind of interlude where there's this song in heaven. And what we learn is the ascension of this child, the ascension of this person into heaven, the taking up of him, is the defeat of the dragon and of the serpent. And that's where we get to the first part that Terry read for us, this song from heaven. And in response to the dragon being thrown out of heaven, in response to the devil being defeated by the resurrection of Jesus, this is what the the people in heaven sing. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. This is the song sung in heaven at the ascension of Jesus. This story about the falling of the dragon is not about Satan falling from heaven. This is not about when the devil became the devil and rebelled against God. And whatever you've learned about the devil and demons falling from heaven and and becoming evil, that is not what's happening here. This is about the defeat of Satan at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Jesus dies, rises again, goes into heaven, and it's at that point that the devil is defeated completely once and for all. And even in this song, we read that the one who wants to oppose and to accuse God's people of sin is now thrown down. It's the resurrection of Jesus that makes Satan no longer able to accuse us of any wrong. Because now we have the righteousness of Jesus. Now we are made holy like Jesus. If you follow Jesus, if you belong to him, you have his holiness, you have his righteousness, Your sin cannot stand against you, and the devil has nothing to accuse you of. He has been thrown down and defeated. Only even in this song now, even in this song, they recognize because of his defeat, because he's been beaten, his fury is all the greater. And then at the end of chapter 12, we read that he wanted to go after the woman, that is the people of God, the community of God, but she's been taken away to be safe, and now he goes after the followers of Jesus. Now he goes after her offspring, and explicitly it says, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. 
And so the defeated devil, the defeated Satan, who wanted to pursue the woman, to pursue Israel, to pursue the people of God, now that she's been protected and taken away, now he's going to come after the church with all the greater fury because he knows he is defeated. This is some strange stuff, right? But this is what's happening behind the scenes of the world. There is an enemy. Some of us don't want to believe that. We don't want to hold on to that because it's just too weird. It's just too strange. I don't want to believe that there's a devil out there. I don't want to believe in a Satan. I don't want to believe in an opponent to God and to God's people. And yet, the scripture is clear. We have this supernatural enemy who pursues the church, who pursues God's people. Not individually, but as a body, as a family. He's going after all of those who follow Jesus and keep his commandments. We have a spiritual enemy. And this is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 can say, we don't battle with flesh and blood, but we battle against principalities and powers and strongholds in the spiritual realms. What Paul is doing in Ephesians when he says that is saying, look, you're not at war with people. Stop fighting amongst yourselves. Stop arguing amongst yourselves. Stop thinking that the the answer to the issues of the world is to take up arms and to, to fight back. You're fighting against spiritual forces, and therefore, your weapons must be spiritual. And so in that same passage, Paul will say, take up this spiritual armor. Take up the word of God. Know the word of God and be able to wield it against the spiritual enemies so that you can save your physical enemies. So that you can pursue in love the people who you call your enemies and recognize that it's not them who are your opponents. It's not them who are your real enemies. It's the spiritual forces behind them. It's Satan and his powers that are behind them. That's the biblical worldview. That's the worldview that's given to us by the scriptures. And that's what we must own. And the only way to bear patiently with struggle and oppression and even persecution in this world is to know that the forces behind that persecution are not the people who are doing it, but the forces of evil, but Satan himself. And to know that Jesus will win in the end. We can truly say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not mine, says Brandon. I don't get to wreak vengeance on the earth because I recognize that Jesus stands opposed to the spiritual forces of the world, which are my true enemies, not the people that I see. So that's where we end in chapter 12, where we have this spiritual enemy And he's been thrown down to the earth. He's been defeated by the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But because he's been defeated and because he knows his time is short, he is all the more vicious. He's all the more enraged. And so in 13, we see this weird, weird picture where the dragon, the the serpent that had been thrown down, Satan himself, is standing on the sea. And from the sea, he calls up this beast. Now, this beast... Is, is reminiscent of the beasts of Daniel. Daniel was a prophet in the Old Testament who foretold the, the situation of the people of God and spoke the words of God to God's people. And in Daniel, Daniel foresaw multiple beasts rising up to oppose God's people. And these beasts were the empires of the earth. 
And here in chapter 13, when the dragon, Satan, is standing on the beach, he calls up this beast from the sea. The beast from the sea has all the elements of all the beasts of Daniel. And if you're one of John's readers, if you're one of the first readers of the Revelation, and you hear this, you think Rome. The beast from the sea is Rome. The empire of Rome that that seeks to squash everybody who stands opposed to it. The empire of Rome, which backs the local governments that are oppressing the followers of Jesus. That's what you read when you read about the beast from the sea. And so the the dragon, now recognizing that he needs a mode of, of oppressing the people of God, he needs a way of going against the people of God, he raises up this beast from the sea, the empire of Rome and the empires of the world that would stand opposed to the church. And the beast becomes the dragon's agent for persecuting the church in the world. This is not limited only to this time, though. Throughout history, throughout time, when the church has not been in a place of political power, the church has been under the thumb of oppressive empires. Unfortunately, when the church has been in a place of political power, it has been the thumb of oppression to too many people. And so the church is not to be wed to geopolitical power. We are not an empire. We are not a beast from the sea. But where the church has had no power in the world, it's felt itself under the thumb of oppression and of persecution from wicked empires. Today, you can go to vom.org, voiceofthemartyrs.org, and you can look at their world watch list, and you can see the top 100 countries in the world where the church faces persecution and how that persecution works. And every one of those places, the the government that is over, the government that is removing this persecution is a beast from the sea. It's one of these beasts with blasphemous names on its head. And they want to look good. The beast from the sea wants to look like something you would want to follow. It looks powerful. It looks strong. We're told that one of the horns on the beast's head looks as though it's had a mortal wound, but it's been healed. It wants to trick you into thinking that it's been resurrected too, just like Jesus. The the dragon knows what appeals to people, both power and vulnerability. And so he will do what he can to mock the message of Jesus, to draw us in, to worship the beast. And so the dragon wants to make the beast look powerful and impressive, but also appeal to us by mocking the gospel of Jesus, by showing us that it's been wounded too, but it's been healed just like Jesus was. And then we have this other beast. So you have the the beast of the sea, which is the empires of the world, which will persecute God's people. And then the dragon raises up another beast, a beast from the land. And this one is even more a mockery of Jesus. This one looks like a lamb, and it has two little horns. It looks like the lamb that was slaughtered. It looks like Jesus on the throne, but it speaks with the voice of the dragon. And the dragon gives it the power and the ability to work miracles and to do great signs. And this beast from the land is pointing to the beast of the sea and deceiving the nations into following the beast of the sea. This beast of the land, this false prophet who looks like Jesus, who makes you want to believe that he's good and righteous and holy, he's pointing to the beast of the sea and saying, follow him, love him, fall down and worship him. Worship the empires, worship the governments, worship the nations, follow them, give them all of your loyalty, give them all of your allegiance. Because listen to me, look, I'm the lamb. The false prophet says, 
And he calls the people to worship the beast, who is really the image of the dragon, the image of Satan. And so we see here that that Satan has formed this kind of unholy trinity to stand in opposition to God and God's people. With the dragon and the beast from the sea and the beast from the false land, who's the or beast from the land who is the false prophet. We've got this kind of unholy trinity that's deceiving the nations and the world into following Satan so that they won't follow the lamb. And this unholy trinity is making war on God's people, and he's doing it very deceptively. As the false prophet goes out and calls people to loyalty and allegiance to the empire as opposed to the lamb. And he does it by appearing like the lamb, trying to make you think that it is a good and right and Jesus-loving thing to do to fall down and worship and follow the empire. And we've got false prophets like this all over the world today who will tell you that it is right and good to do anything in service to your nation or to the people that you're loyal to, that the ends justify the means, that it is okay and right to act in any way or to do anything that will preserve the lives of the people that you're most loyal to, whether those your family or your nation or whoever. There are false prophets within the church who will make you believe that it is all right and okay to do anything in the service of your family or of your nation as long as it preserves them because they are your highest loyalty. They're your highest priority. But here in chapter 13 with the false prophet, we see very clearly if we are called to break the commands of Jesus in service to anyone, we are aligned with Satan and not with Jesus. If we are called to defy the commands of Jesus, if we are called to break the commands of Jesus in service to absolutely anyone, we have allied ourselves not with the Lamb, not with Jesus, but with his very enemy. And so we have to check our loyalty. We have to check where our loyalty truly lies. Is my loyalty to the things of the world? Is it to my children first, or my wife first, or my job first, or my country first? Where's my loyalty really lie? And what am I willing to do to maintain those loyalties? What am I willing to do in order to defend those people? Is it anything at all, really? Because if it is, and I'm tempted to break the commands of Jesus in any way, then I'm not allied to Jesus. I'm allied to the devil. I'm allied to Satan. And this is hard to hold. This is, this is a hard truth to grasp sometimes because we think of these loyalties as good and great things, and they are. Hear me. It is right and good to be loyal to your family, to your spouse, to your workplace. It is right and good to be loyal to your country to the extent that it is righteous and following in the footsteps of Jesus But the moment that I have to step out of line with Jesus to stay loyal to this other thing, I'm no longer with Jesus. I've given up my loyalty to him. Now we're going to see in chapter 14, the lamb rise up against this unholy trinity. And so in chapter 14, we're opened with this picture of this slaughtered lamb, that is Jesus, who is God himself, standing upon Mount Zion on his holy mountain with 144,000 of his followers. Now, as we've talked about over and over and over in Revelation, none of these numbers are literal. This is not exactly 144,000 people. 144,000 is 12 times 12,000. It's representative of all of the people of God. 
throughout history. It's representative of all the people who follow Jesus, who follow this lamb. And here is the lamb standing on his holy mountain, opposed to the dragon and the unholy trinity, surrounded by the army of his followers, the army of his people. And they stand opposed to all who would deceive the world. They stand opposed to the empires that would persecute the church. They stand opposed to all who would speak lies and through deception cause people to worship them. They stand opposed to everything that is opposed to the church. And in verse 4 we read, these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remain virgins. Now, now listen, hold up. I'm married and I have children. You can deduce I am not a virgin, but I am one of these 144,000. And so are you if you follow Jesus. When it talks about not defiling yourselves with women or, or being virgins, what it means is that you haven't given your loyalty over to the empire. In the coming chapters, we're going to see uh, this prostitute image rise up, this prostitute who is Babylon, who is Rome. And we're going to hear that the people who are loyal to Rome over Jesus have slept with the prostitute. And here what it means by this virgin image is that you haven't allied yourself with Rome. You haven't allied yourself with Babylon. These people have been loyal to Jesus. They've been loyal to the Lamb. And so the Lamb rises up, and the Lamb is now going to make war on the unholy trinity. And so the Spirit says, yes, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. These are a blessing over the followers of Jesus. And then we see that the lamb has a sickle in his hand and he is going to go harvest the world and bring about his wrath upon the nations of the earth. He's going to defeat the devil. He's going to defeat the beast. He's going to defeat the false prophet. Jesus has won already. Now, the, the encouragement here to God's people, the encouragement here to John's original readers and to you and to me is that Jesus has already won. It's a foregone conclusion. There's, there's no wondering. There's no concern. No matter what the world looks like, no matter how weak the church may appear, no matter how strong the forces that oppose the church may appear, though they appear like a beast that looks like a leopard and a lion and a bear and a scorpion, and though they look like the most powerful things in the world, the enemies of God have no footing. They have no way to stand. They are already defeated, which means the enemies of the church are already defeated. It's over. Remember, in the song in chapter 12, the song from heaven said, the dragon knows he's beaten. He knows that his time is short. It's only because he's backed into a corner that he becomes as vicious as he is. It's, he only looks so strong because he's so enraged, but his defeat is sure. And with these 144,000 surrounding Jesus, what Jesus is assuring them is, look, even if it looks like the dragon has beaten your life, even if it looks like the beast has won over you, even if it looks like you will lose your life for the sake of Christ, you will stand with him in heaven. You will stand with him on his holy mountain. You will stand with him opposed to all of the evils of the world. He's already won. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be concerned over. Only give your loyalty entirely to the lamb. Because giving your loyalty to the beast, giving your loyalty to the, the things of the world, giving your loyalty to, to anything on this earth that is opposed to Jesus is a recipe for defeat. You cannot live in victory. You cannot live with Jesus. You cannot live 
as one of his. You cannot be one of these 144,000 if your loyalty is given to anybody or anything other than Jesus. Now, I realize, as I talk about that, that's kind of a, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow. I love my wife. I love my children. I love you. I love my neighbors. But none of you, none of them are first in my affections. None. Jesus is first in my affections. My affection and my loyalty and my allegiance goes to him first. And it is only in loving him that I can love you the way you deserve to be loved. It is only by loving Jesus, by giving myself to him, by by giving all of my loyalty and allegiance to him, that my family gets the love that they deserve from me. Think of it this way. The people around you deserve your self-sacrificial love. Your family, your wife, your husband, your children, your your aunts and uncles, your, your fellow church members, your neighbors. Everyone you look upon deserves your self-sacrificial love because that's how God loves them. Everyone does. But without the example and empowerment of Jesus, I am incapable of offering that kind of love. Without my affection being entirely spent upon the one who loved me in that way, I can't love you that way. It is to the benefit of my wife and my children and my family and my community and you that I love Jesus first because he's the only one who can show me and empower me to love you the way that he has. And so it's only by giving all of our loyalty and affection and allegiance to Jesus that we can actually be the best husbands and wives and parents and brothers and sisters and citizens that we can be. Because only through his empowerment can we lay down our lives in love for others. Our God, Yahweh, the Father of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who is Lord and God, the Holy Spirit, our God is the only God who came and laid down everything for you. Who came and laid down everything for me. And he's the only God who can give us the power to love others that same way. So if I want my affections to be rightly ordered, if I want my loyalties to be rightly ordered, if I want to be a good citizen, and I do want to be a good citizen because I love where I live, and if I want to be a good husband and a good father and a good brother and a good son, if I want to be all of those things, then the best thing I can do for the people around me is to give everything that I am to Jesus and let him order my affections. So today, the question for you and for me is, where is my deepest loyalty? Where is my deepest allegiance? Who have I given everything to? Because the only one worthy of my unqualified allegiance, who I know I can trust with whatever he tells me, and I can do absolutely anything he calls me to, is Jesus. And by loving him, I love everyone else better. So where's your allegiance today? Where's your loyalty? Have we been deceived into giving our loyalty to the beast? To the dragon who who looks like the lamb, but isn't? Have we been deceived into giving our loyalty to things that are good, but not ultimate? Have we been deceived into giving all of our loyalty and affection to the people that we're supposed to love? 
but holding back from Jesus? If you want your affections to be rightly ordered, if you want to love well, if you want to serve well, if you want to be the absolute best human being you can be, then you have to give yourself to Jesus and allow him to work his will in and through you. It's only through him that we become all that God wants us to be. And it's only through him that we can love and serve the way that our families and our communities deserve. So today's the day to order your loyalties, order your allegiances by giving your ultimate allegiance to Jesus, the King, and allowing him to love through you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you've called us to ultimate allegiance. Thank you that you are the good, self-giving, self-sacrificing God who we can trust wholly and completely and never have to doubt. Thank you, God, that you do stand opposed to this unholy trinity. You stand opposed to Satan and to the beasts. And you, Lord, God, you have already won the victory over them. God, I pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in the world, those who are suffering under unjust regimes, under unjust governments, those who are suffering in places where the beast is in power. I pray for our brothers and sisters who are putting their lives on the line to follow you, to love you, to simply proclaim that they are belong to Jesus. God, for those 4,600 who lost their lives last year, who were killed because of their faith. God, I, I rejoice that they are with you. Lord, I mourn over the forces of evil that cost them their lives. And I pray, Lord, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come, Lord. Bring your justice. Bring your peace. And Lord, make my heart wholly allegiant and loyal to you and you alone so that I can love as you have loved. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.